Hello, and welcome back to What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. Although, since this is our last podcast for the year, we're going to switch it up some. And if you listen to the end, we'll have a special announcement. We're taping on Thursday, December 21st at 9.45 a.m. As with all news in Washington, things can change fast. And this week in particular, things might have changed by the time you hear this. So let's get to it. Today, we're joined by Joanne Cannon of Politico. Good morning, everybody. Alice Olstein of Talking Points Memo. Good morning. And Margot Sanger-Katz of the New York Times. Hello. So, podcast ladies, I do want to talk a little bit about the news of the week because Congress is, of course, waiting until the last minute to do lots of important stuff. But then I want to spend some time looking back at the year in health policy, and there was plenty. So, first up, the tax bill. We were spot on last week about what did and didn't make it into the final version when it comes to health care. The penalty for not having health insurance will drop to zero beginning in 2019. The orphan drug credit, which we actually weren't sure about, will be cut in half. All the other changes that the House proposed, getting rid of the medical expense deduction and deductions for uh, student loans and, and graduate students, were taken out of the final bill. So we talked about this a little bit last week, but what will it really mean to get rid of the individual mandate? Margot, you've, you've been on this all week, haven't you? I think it's pretty clear that having no individual mandate means that insurance premiums are going to be higher in the individual market going forward and that the uninsured rate is going to be higher going forward. But I think the magnitude of those changes is really unknown. And it's going to be interesting to see. And it will be interesting to see whether states or federal policymakers try to bring in other provisions that can try to counterbalance some of this effect. I think that you know, we don't know. CBO scored it as costing 13 million people insurance over a decade. Some of that is voluntary. It's not people all being kicked off of insurance. But some, some of it is some people, of it being, is kicked people being kicked off. Some of it is people who won't be able to afford it as the market changes. And some of it is people who have never wanted to buy the insurance, but because of the mandate, they did. There's a huge... There's also just... I, I think yeah. that there's sort of like a behavioral economics effect of the mandate that isn't discussed enough. But some people, they get the message that they have to buy insurance. They go to the marketplace and look at what the options are. And lo and behold, it turns out that either they are eligible for Medicaid, which they don't have to pay any premium for at all, and they would not have investigated that. They would not have enrolled in Medicaid without that kind of nudge. And that's the basis for CBO's estimate that people won't get Medicaid. Right. Right. Or they might have not understood how the Affordable Care Act worked, and they would have thought because they were relatively low income that insurance was totally unaffordable for them, and that's why they had never shopped for it before. But they get this message, you have to buy insurance. There's going to be a punishment if you don't. They go into the marketplace and they realize, oh, like I could get a bronze plan for $20 a month. I actually would like to have that kind of financial protection for my family. So I think in addition to the kind of weighing that some people are going to do of like how much is the penalty versus how much is my premium? Can I afford this premium? I think that there are a lot of people who may have been induced into this market just because of the vague notion that they were supposed to go there. And that is is 
a form of advertising and outreach and other things that were happening with the Affordable Care Act that was really bringing more awareness to the public of the idea, you should get insurance, you can get insurance, there are new options available for you. But that kind of negative nudge, we don't really know how many people who got insured got insured because they were pushed to look as a result of the mandate and how many people were pushed to look just because they heard the sort of good news message. Tim Joe has okay. sort of indicated that they're rethinking this. I mean, they've they've sort of, you know, we, the CBO is the, is the scorekeeper. You have to go by what the CBO says in terms of passing legislation. They have actually dropped a really big hint about that they're not so <laughs> sure about this one. But the other complicating factor is when they did do that report est- estimating the 10% premium increase and the 13 million fewer insured, they were assuming that the cost-sharing subsidies would be paid. And there's a huge question about that now. So so do we do we, do we how big an impact will it have? None of us around this table or anybody else on the planet are sure. Will it have an impact? Yes. Will it be a damaging impact? Yes, in terms of the actual market, the the ICA markets. The magnitude is a question, but it is and not a, big, a good thing for A big unknown shoe is like, are insurers going to leave? So, And that is not something that you can plug into an economic model and, and get the perfect answer in the way that CBO does. These are companies have to make strategic decisions about whether this is a market that they want to continue to participate in. They've taken a bunch of hits over the years. And it is possible and perhaps even likely that some insurers are going to say no individual mandate, no CSRs, no advertising, the president going on Twitter every 30 seconds and saying that Obamacare doesn't exist anymore. This has been a frustrating market for me to operate in. There is a very relatively small number of people who have signed up. This is not going to be like a great growth opportunity for me. Like I'm just throwing in the towel. And if that happens, happens enough and in enough places, that is going to have a big consumer impact, too. And that is not something that is easily measured or calibrated by an economic model. That really has to do with the kind of just choices of CEOs of these companies. And and the which states they're operating in and what those states are up to and just so many factors that, that are really hard to predict. But when the president said yesterday, we basically repealed Obamacare, that's not the case. And that's extremely misleading. And he was sort of pushing the idea that the mandate really is the linchpin of the whole system, which was sort of the model that everybody else agreed with. But now we are seeing that if the Medicaid expansion is surviving and the subsidies are surviving and all these other pieces are surviving, that may draw people in as sort of the carrot, even though we don't have the stick anymore. Starting in 2019, you still have to buy health insurance next year. <laughs> I have a que- I have a Congress question for you, though, mm-hmm. Alice. Do and and this has been sort of this big dispute when they were trying to get rid of the mandate. Was it with the intention of actually causing a law to fail, or was it just getting rid of the one thing that everybody hated that they'd politically been railing against? I get it's sort of this. Do, you know, do they do, are they trying to make it fail, or do they just want to say they took a, they took away the thing that they hated the most? Well, it depends who you ask. So some people say one, some people say the other, and some people are. Some Republicans are pretty openly saying this will make it so that we have to come back next year. I think that was John Cornyn, right? <laughs> yeah. And Mitch McConnell said it in sort of his own kind of subtle way also. But um, I mean, and then other sort of rank and file Republicans are like gleefully saying, yes, we gutted Obamacare. It's, you know, it won't function now. Um, and again, that is an open question. But the fact that the midterm elections are next year and doing anything politically dicey, especially in terms of the social safety net um, in an election year and having even one fewer Republican seat in the Senate with the Alabama race, I think it's not certain they will be able to do anything more related to the Affordable Care Act after this. It's also, yeah. if you think about the effects of this, and there is a lot of uncertainty, as we said, but the kind of people who are going to be the most disadvantaged by 
premiums increasing and sort of consumer choice declining are the kinds of people in this market that the Republicans have tended to be the most concerned about. So they're kind of people who are firmly in the middle class or in the upper middle class, kind of self-employed professionals, the kinds of people who are well served, relatively well served by the individual market before Obamacare. Those people are going to bear the brunt of this chaos. Lower income people are really are really insulated by a lot of this market instability because they are continuing to get subsidies that are pegged to their income. Now, if every insurer in their market leaves and there's no insurance they can buy, like those people are going to be harmed too. But I think what we've seen in these first few years of Obamacare is that the subsidies are generous enough at the low end of the income spectrum that signups are pretty good among that population. It's really the people who are higher up on the income scale who have to pay more out of pocket. Those people are much more sensitive to the variations in price. And those are the people that I think are most at risk if things get kind of out of hand in these markets in the coming years. And they're primarily Republican, it's worth remembering, which is sort of the, the central irony of all of this is the people who are buying their own insurance and not getting a subsidy are more Republican than Democrat, just if you look at the, you know, the, the general d- demographic breakdowns. I want to add one more sort of semantic thing to this. Tim Jost, writing in Health Affairs this week, he's a uh, former law professor and, a, and an ACA expert, suggested that because of the budget process they were using for this, they didn't actually repeal the mandate. They're just reducing the penalties to zero. And he's theorizing that for some people, obviously not a ton, just the idea that that still that they are still required to have health insurance, even though there's no penalty for not doing it, might drive some people to sign up. I mean, I would push back against that by saying, I don't think anybody knows that. I think every <laughs> because of the way it's being reported, everybody thinks that the, that the mandate itself is being taken away. But it's an interesting sort of talking about behavioral economics thought that, you know, in theory, I mean, in the, the law says you're required to have health insurance. Well, yeah. There's just no penalty for not having it. I mean, anymore. I read that post, too, and Tim talked about, you know, some other things tied to the mandate, you know, other sort of important keep, keep consumer yes, protections. minimum benefits. That and... are, are not repealed because the mandate's not repealed. But for a consumer, from the perspective of a consumer, the mandate's repealed. Now, there's another factor is because it is 2019, but that hasn't been widely reported or talked about. There are people who think it's gone now. So is that, you know, did that affect? We don't know the enrollment figures. I mean, while we're here taping, they could be coming out. I mean, they were, yeah, we're expecting we, we them thought today. They were, they, we thought they were going to come <laughs> yesterday. Um, we, you know, did people not sign up because they thought the mandate was going to be repealed? Did people sign up and now that they've heard the mandate is repealed, they won't pay their premiums? We could see very, we could see in the next few weeks some. You know, if there's normally about 10 to 15 percent people drop out of the market, they don't pay their premiums. We could see 25 percent. I mean, I'm just pulling out a number. I mean, we don't know because if people bought it because of a mandate, now they have a what did I call it? A get out of mandate free. Yeah, get out of mandate (laughs) free card. Um, We don't know how fast they're going to play that. Um, And that's it's all a communications question, right? So you could imagine a situation in which. Uh, the Trump administration, well, it would be hard to imagine, but you could imagine a situation (laughs) where the Trump administration would be out there, you know, yelling from the rooftops, like, you are still required to have insurance, just we took away the penalty. (laughs) And the message would be, like, there's an expectation that if you can afford insurance, you should have it. Uh, We just thought the penalty was unfair. But probably, instead, that's just going to be more of the same. It's just going to be, like, Obamacare is horrible, and, you know, we've we've gutted it, and you don't need to sign up. Right, because they're not, uh, they're also not saying, hey, uh, this many millions of people can get a a plan for zero or less than whatever. Um, they're not emphasizing that aspect of it either. And so the 
from a communications perspective, there's only negative messaging going on. And let's remember what the president said yesterday. In a 30-second period, he said that the mandate was repealed. And then he said that means that Obamacare is repealed. And we don't know whether that in turn means that you know, it's politically he can say we did it so we can change the subject because it hasn't been great. No, for no, then he said he's going to replace and then it with said, something. Yeah, terrific. Then he said maybe we'll do block grants, which was a reference to the Graham-Cassidy bill. And then he said, or we'll do something terrific. So that brings <laughs> us back to what we've been calling the last year, terrific care. And we don't know what terrific care looks like, but it's terrific. Yeah, I feel like it doesn't make the Graham-Cassidy plan sound very fun. You know what I mean? It's like maybe we'll do this or maybe we'll do a terrific thing. <laughs> We have to move on or we won't get through this. Um, The other big thing related to the tax bill is this PAYGO question um, that, that you know, adding adding one point four trillion dollars to the deficit requires offsetting cuts. As Margot, I will recommend everyone look at the the wonderful graphic that Margot and her colleagues at the Upshot did um, about all the things that would get cut. But obviously the biggest one is Medicare. Now, there's this question about when the president signs the bill, about when PAYGO happens. Right. So where do we know has a decision been made? And can somebody explain what this what this decision entails? Yeah, so I can explain it because I actually have am intimately aware of the details of Pago. Uh, it's just like part of my accumulating like knowledge of budget arcana. Um, so it is this law, and it was designed to discourage Congress from running up the deficit. And basically what it says is that Congress passes all of its legislation over the course of a year, and some of it increases the deficit and some of it decreases the deficit. And at the end of the year, there's like a scorecard where all of the scores of all of the bills are added together. And then if overall Congress has increased the deficit, then that amount of money has to automatically come out of a certain list of mandatory spending programs. Uh, Medicare has a capped cut. It can only be cut 4%. uh, And then all these other programs basically can be cut all the way down to zero, depending on how big the deficit increases. But because of this year-long scorecard part, uh, what happens is that the, the total isn't tallied until the year is over. So if President Trump signs the tax bill before the end of the year, that calculation is going to happen in January. And that means that cuts to a lot of mandatory spending programs, including farm aid, um, everything, All community sorts of block right. grants. I mean, it's it's, Students, it's, uh, this it's like education. it's like soup, soup to nuts. Uh, almost every mandatory spending program that is not income tied uh, is going to go to zero dollars. So not Medicaid and not not, not Medicaid, yeah. not food stamps, uh, not Social Security, not Social Security. But it is a very long list. It's more than 200 programs. And with the exception of Medicare and maybe one or two other things, all the magnitude of the deficit increase associated with this tax cut bill is so large that all of them are anticipated to go to zero dollars. They will be completely eliminated as a result of this automatic process. So if Trump signs it this year, those cuts will automatically go into effect next year, unless Congress does something to address it. Right, Which they can Congress it. always does. <laughs> yeah, there's, I mean, this is just existing law. Congress writes the laws. They can change the law. They can have a law tomorrow that says, but like... They, but they would need 60 votes, meaning they would need Democrats. Yeah, they, I mean, they have to actually yeah. pass a law through a normal legal process that's going to require, you know, a majority of votes in the House and 60 votes in the Senate to overcome a filibuster. If Trump holds on to the tax bill, which he's allowed to do for 30 days, and signs it in early January... Then the calculation about the deficit impact of that bill does not officially happen until the following year. And so there is this open question of, is Congress going to try to fix this problem as part of the year-end spending bill, in which case Trump could sign it right away? 
Or does Congress have too many moving pieces in its negotiations about this bill? They don't want to deal with this pay-go problem right now, in which case Trump could sign it, you know, on New Year's Day. And then Congress will have all year to figure out how to stop it from happening if it wishes to. And politically, that sort of surprised me that they actually came out and said that yesterday, that they might sign it after, in, 20, in 2018, because you, know, you sort of want as much pressure as you can to get things done. And the odds were that the Democrats, I mean, some of the Democrats have come out and said they would expect to have done PAYGO. The, it's not a sure thing. Nothing is a sure thing, but it was moving in that direction. I mean, nothing in this Congress is a sure thing. Um, but by saying that yesterday... They basically created this escape valve, right? So if they don't sign it until January 1st and if it becomes part of the fiscal 2019, the it gives the Democrats an entire year <laughs> to not do it and to say, oh, Congress just passed this corporate tax break. Now they're going to cut Medicare, which is what we've been hearing in the last few weeks. Instead of hearing it for a few weeks, we would hear it right up until the 2018 election. So on one hand, I wasn't surprised that it's a it may be a very smart policy lever because they may not be able to resolve this in the next 10 days. On the other hand, I was a little surprised that they said it yesterday because in your sort of this pressure tactics of getting end of year spending spending bills through, even short term ones, it, it created this Although escape I, valve I for the Democrats. The, the politics of it actually are a little bit uncertain. Catherine Rempel had a good column in the Washington Post yesterday in which she sort of made the opposite argument from you, which she said leaving this kind of hanging around for a year actually gives a lot of leverage to the Freedom Caucus and others in the House who really want to have more budget austerity, that they can, because it's not going to be part of this huge must-pass thing, that they could withhold their votes on the PAYGO waiver in exchange for getting some other kinds of, of budget cuts that they want more. Whereas if it was kind of folded in at the end of the year, uh, there would be enough votes this year to kind of just push it through. Oh, the, the Freedom Caucus can be out, as we saw last year when we were doing when we were doing the spending bill, which we'll talk about in, in 30 seconds. Um, the Freedom Caucus withheld their votes and the Democrats yeah. voted instead. And they don't, they don't have enough votes. I if it's bipartisan, they don't have of, enough votes to stop I it. I just think the politics Senate, of this yeah. are very tricky because you would imagine that the Democrats would like to prevent automatic budget cuts to Medicare and many other social safety net programs. But, you know, they, as as Joanne says, they sort of are getting uh, some some good advantage out of uh, banging the Republicans on over the head with the fact that they are causing these automatic cuts. And so who ultimately votes for this thing in the end is like you imagine that the Democrats will vote for it, but it's a little bit hard to it know. It just depends on how they calculate who's going to win the blame game. But I don't think at the end of the day it's easy for the Democrats to allow these cuts and blame the Democrat, blame the Republicans when they are actually voting no. So it's it's really because how does how is it sold? How is it you know, how is it perceived? Whose fault is it? And it's unpredictable. But the other thing is, yes, as Julie, I mean, I agree with Julie. The Freedom Caucus is going to, you know, empower themselves further in the House. But by definition, these spending bills have to be bipartisan in the Senate. You're going to have to get 60 votes in the Senate. So in the House, we, we may very well see what we saw last year, which is that some of the Freedom Caucus votes no, but some of the Democrats vote yes. That's not easy for Ryan. He has Speaker Ryan. He's done it before. He's going to have to do it again. All right. Well, and let's. I'm, and I'm going to turn to you. On, oh, go ahead, Alice. Paygo, it, it's worth noting that PAYGO was also one of Susan Collins' demands to vote for the tax bill. So it is um, one additional thing that is completely unknown. She has given her vote for the tax bill. The tax bill has passed. And this is still dangling, just like her 
healthcare demands. Well, that was and that was just what I was going to ask next, <laughs> which is the tax bill is a done deal. The spending bill, the bill that, to keep the government open past Friday, uh, is not. Um, and as we know, that spending bill was supposed to carry all manner of other things. The health bills that Susan Collins uh, asked for, the the, the bill to, to reinstate the, the cost sharing reduction subsidies and her reinsurance bill. And it's also was supposed to carry CHIP. And what do we know about the state of the spending well, bill, Alice? It, it, it was a Christmas tree loaded with ornaments, and the ornaments have been falling off throughout the week as as things have uh, gotten down to the wire, and and people are sort of in a, locked in a staring contest to to see who will break. And um, so now, so originally the House was trying to push uh, House conservatives were trying to push a model that would authorize the Pentagon budget for an entire year, but the rest of the government for just a few weeks, um, and chip. And that fell apart. That did not have the votes. It wasn't going to pass. And so now they are looking at six months of CHIP, the Children's Health Insurance Program that expired a few months ago, and states are running out of money. And it's really running out of money. Alabama's getting dire, kicking kids off. Um, And uh, so that that needs to get done. And so they are pushing uh, six months of CHIP. And just a few weeks of government funding and maybe a few other things. We're not sure yet. Although Susan Collins announced yesterday that her health care bills aimed at uh, mitigating the damage from repealing the individual mandate are not going to be in the spending bill. She insists they'll get passed in January. But it is worth remembering that she said those needed to pass into law before she voted on the tax bill. And that did not happen. But one of the dynamics there is that her vote ended up not mattering on the tax bill. So during the repeal all year, she was pivotal, but she had allies. She always had two or three allies, maybe more because that last bill never got to the floor. We don't know who else would have voted against it. Here she ended up being alone. And you don't have as much clout. Yes, McConnell made her these promises because at that point, I don't think he totally knew how a few of these votes were going to turn out, but it turned out to be a unanimous Republican vote. And when your vote doesn't count, you don't, I mean, it doesn't. When they, when they don't need your vote. When they don't need you, you know, you don't have as much clout. Now, I, you know, do we don't know how this is going to play out. I mean, McConnell public, Mitch McConnell, Senate Majority Leader, publicly made these promises and he has reaffirmed them, in, in fact. And Paul Ryan made a promise on Pago, too. I mean, that, that was Pago, both of yes. them. Yeah. Yes. So, so, you know, it's, you know, our CSRs and, and, Reinsurance going to make it through in January? There's huge doubts about that. Paygo is more likely, but but not uh, necessarily in January, right? And they may not, as we know, just discussed, they may not need it in January, right? And she's, you know, it's it, her position ended up being a much more isolated position. She didn't have Lisa Murkowski, she didn't have John McCain, she ended up not with Corker. I mean, it, she was alone, and when you're alone, and <laughs> they can do it without you. <laughs> All right. Well, I want to before we, since we, we've been going on with the with this week's news, but I want to talk about this year's news. So I want to sort of go around uh, and start with the biggest stories of the year. And I'm going to take the, the the host prerogative and start. Of course, I think biggest story of the year is the partly successful effort to uh, to undo the Affordable Care Act. And I'm actually going to do my extra credit early because it's a great story that was written by Joanne yesterday. Ooh. And I want to read a couple of paragraphs from it just because I'm jealous of the writing. It says, the sweeping Republican tax bill on the verge of final passage would repeal the individual mandate in 2019, potentially taking millions of people out of the health insurance market. On top of that, the Trump administration has killed some subsidies, halved the insurance enrollment period, gutted 
supported the Obamacare marketing campaign and rolled out a regulatory red carpet for skimpy new health plans that will change the insurance landscape in ways that are harmful to former President Barack Obama's signature health care law. None of these individually represent a death blow, but in the aggregate, the past year adds up to a slow, stealthy erosion of the law. I thought that was rather well put. Regulatory red carpet is a great phrase, John. Yes, it is. <laughs> it's always easy to get things past the editor when you're the editor. <laughs> But I mean, was was this, you know, most years we're talking about Medicare. And actually, this year we did talk about Medicaid a lot. I mean, was was this the biggest story of the year? Am I missing something? I, so can I sort of yes, be contrarian? Yes. Um, I think this is the biggest story of the year, sort of the fight over Obamacare. But I actually think all of the things that Joanne wrote are absolutely true. I mean, the law has been weakened and undermined in many ways. And its future success is like almost certainly going to be... Uh, interfered with by the changes that were wrought this year. But I also think that the law has showed tremendous resilience, much more so than I would have expected. I remember... And popularity. Yeah, I remember on a growing part. I mean, that it's not dead, and it's more popular than it is. This is great irony. It is more popular than it has ever been. I just remember on election night, you know, I, I... was watching the New York Times live tracker and I saw many hours ahead of the of you know the final results that you know President Trump was going to become President Trump and I like in the middle of the night wrote this article which I had not thought to write ahead of time uh, you know oh my gosh like Obamacare really could get repealed Republicans have a strategy for it they looks like they're going to have the votes it looks like they're going to have a president who's going to help them and you know this was a year of many serious and failed attempts to do away with it. Uh, And we saw a real groundswell of public support. The law has become more popular. Medicaid has become this sort of uh, untouchable, I mean, maybe not untouchable, but much more untouchable than, you know, we might have expected. I think the kind of political conventional wisdom in Washington is like, oh, you know, it's poor people, they don't vote. It's an unpopular stigmatized program. Actually, you know, there were people demonstrating in the halls of Congress and there were, you know, there were many, many Republican senators who were really concerned about the program. Uh, you know, tr- all year long we were worried about these CSRs that, you know, Trump had the ability to pull out of the markets and, you know, kind of destroy everything. And lo and behold, he did it and the markets held up okay. I mean, like, again, they're not as awesome as they would have been. They're, you know, insurance is more expensive and uh, things are more shaky. But there, it turned out that the markets were more resilient than a lot of people thought they were. So, uh, you know, it's I, I guess it's like ha- glass half full, glass half empty. I think everything Joanne says is right. But to me, when I look back over the arc of this year, I think, oh, like Obamacare is actually like more unshakable than I would have expected. And I think right. looking at we don't have the final enrollment numbers. They they could have dropped while we <laughs> were sitting <laughs> here. Um, but I think even what we've seen so far, we don't see a system in free fall. We don't see a system completely collapsing. And in in fact, if you look at some of the states that are running their own exchanges and doing their own outreach and are not dependent on the Trump administration, they some of them are seeing record enrollment. And so I in think this, even even so far in this, you know, a lot of them are still have enrollment. Yeah. They don't end enrollment some of them until month. the end of January. And right. already they're having records. Right. And so I think uh, that shows a large Uh, It's a good measure of the resiliency as well in the face of all of this work to undermine it. I think that the popularity of Medicaid, which Margaret just referred to, has really been interesting. It's something we wrote about a couple of months ago as it emerged. I mean, people really did not. Medicare was the political issue. Medicare motivated voters. Medicare was what Congress people talked about. And all of a sudden, you know, if it's not if Medicaid's not a third rail, it's a 
you know, fifth rail or whatever. <laughs> it, 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 this it, is a complicated train you're imagining. <laughs> there's some electricity <laughs> running through it. But it became something that people cared about, talked about, and Congress heard. It became particularly in the Senate. It was why repeal didn't happen. It was the pre-existing conditions, which was just sort of the public has a basic sense of fairness about pre-ex. And Medicaid, people really did not want to gut it. And people paid attention in a way that they had never, If you know, if you go back to the 1965 when they were Medicare and Medicaid was, um, I've gone back to the New York Times front page in the archives. <laughs> you, it's not, a, it's all about Medicare. Medicaid yeah. isn't even mentioned, at least not the story that you can see online. It doesn't even mention it. Medicaid is huge. It's what, 70, 80 million? What's the number? I forget, 80 million? 74 million, right. I think. Um, last I saw was 77. It's right. more, there are more people on Medicaid than on Medicare. Right. And it's poor kids. And it's... You know, grandma in the nursing home, and it's the disabled, and it's, it's you know, it's now also be, be a huge tool in fighting the opioid epidemic. And the numbers that came out in the middle of the night last night about the rising death toll of the opioids um, is, you know, astonishing and heartbreaking. We do not have solutions. And and people suddenly embrace Medicaid, and they embraced it politically. And it, I think... I think that's, you know, in, this year was clearly dominated by the ACA, but the Medicaid dynamic was part of that. 20 years from now, we might look back and, you know, none of us are science writers. We're all policy writers. But, you know, 20 years from now, we might look back and say, oh, 2017, that was the year of gene therapy. Or I mean, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I mean, I think the, for us, the, you know, what? why did we not get any sleep this year? It was the ACA. And, and let's not forget this is as also the is. year that... <laughs> Uh, that a state decided to expand Medicaid against the wishes of their own Republican governor in Maine. And so that's yet another sign that this program is popular, people support it, people people want it. And we could see other states. Other states are already moving in that direction. Although he's going out of office, kicking and screaming, trying to stop the page in Medicaid. If um, it takes yeah. a lawsuit, if it takes waiting for him to he's end his year, term. Right. So and one I, way or another, it's happening. And I will just point out that I wrote a story the day after the election uh, in 2016 saying, repealing the Affordable Care Act is going to be way harder than they think. <laughs> At least I got well, that Julie one. Julia's always wiser true. than me. <laughs> no, I've been, I've been wrong about a lot of things, but I was not but wrong about that. This year was a hard year to be right. I mean, yeah. you know, they haven't fixed CHIP. I mean, are they going to come up with some kind of short-term patch today or tomorrow? Probably. Are any of us positive of that? No. I mean, there's probably going to be a few months of hobbling. I mean, Julie, actually, you know, when she did your intro and you said, I forgot your exact words, like Congress is now getting all these things Get, you know, they have a few days yeah, to get everything minute, done. They, Actually, they, wait till the last they, have, they have a few days to not get it done because all they're doing is kicking most of it to next to year. To January, yeah. Right, or March. So, <laughs> so it's a, it's really sort of astonishing what wasn't done and the things that weren't done. The fact that we're cobbling together a short-term fix for CHIP as, you know, in, in September – when they failed to fund it, it wasn't unprecedented. It's never gone on this long. It wasn't a crisis. It was a problem, but not a crisis. Right now, I mean, the report that came out from Georgetown yesterday is in January, which is 10 days from now, 2 million kids are at risk in a number of states, with Alabama being the first, I believe. That's a crisis. And I don't think Republicans really want headlines when they come back in January of you know, millions of kids thrown off there. And, and After Democrats gave a tax are, cut to the rich. <laughs> and Democrats are just jumping all over that message. I heard a lot of sort of Christmas carol metaphors. You know, they're, you know, giving to Scrooge, but screwing Tiny they Tim. Brought, they brought actual coal to the press conference. They waved pieces of coal around. Oh, I seen coal in your stocking before, right? if you're on <laughs> chip. You know, big presents from Santa if you're a corporation. So the, the, the messaging um, uh, is just right in Democrats' favor on this 
it is likely they will pass some sort of short-term thing on CHIP, but this is a program that doesn't work well with little short-term emergency stop gaps because they need to plan enrollment and Act. And also it has to do with the way they pay. Right. Um, well, let's move on to, so while we were all talking and writing about the Affordable Care Act, what were the most undercovered health stories? What were the things that we didn't do because we were too busy looking for the uh, the future of the Affordable Care Act? So this is maybe just me expressing my own personal regret about this, because I do think this is a story that has been covered, but I think it has been underemphasized because the Affordable Care Act has been so much in the spotlight, which is the opioid epidemic rages on, you know, by all accounts, the death rates are continuing to increase. Uh, the CDC just announced uh, this morning or last night that life expectancy in the U.S. has declined for the second straight year. That's the first time since the 1960s that's been the case. And they really point the finger at deaths from opioid overdoses and other related accidents as the cause of that change. Uh, it's just it's a huge public health problem. It's a huge public policy problem. It has you know, broad implications for you know, people's health and life and work. And I think that no one really has a great handle on exactly what to do about it yet. And, and if I'm remembering correctly, the opioid, the drug overdose, all drug overdoses, I mean, I edited this after midnight, so if, if I'm a few percentage points off, people will have to forgive me. But I believe the it was, I believe it was 63,000, and it was a 21% increase of drug deaths between 19, 2015 and 2016 when we were supposedly jumping on this epidemic. There are some a few bright spots in sort of prescribing patterns. There are not bright spots in deaths. And part of that is because there's more heroin and fentanyl and another one I can't even pronounce that are really, really lethal. Um, we do not have our handle on this. I'm not sure if it's undercovered or just we don't. I mean, we've covered it. We, I think a lot of people are covering yeah, I was, it. I, I actually have another category but for, we, for we most sure, unresolved. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, and it's like I also think that it's, you know, I think people don't understand how pervasive it is and how all across the country. The death toll, it's not 20-year-olds. I mean, it's from teenagers to people in their 50s and 60s. And across class, yes. across race, income, everything. And I think one reason it's been undercovered is that the federal government has done so little about it. And besides announcing sort of a big messaging campaign along the lines of Nancy Reagan's Just Say No, which was a pretty much a failure and um, proven to be ineffective. And But in, in terms of treatment and um, reforms um, for prescribing, there's just been very, very little action from the federal government, even though this was a huge issue during the campaign and has been all year just a completely devastating national crisis, and we've seen very little to address it on the national level. Well, my most undercovered story of the year, and again, this is sort of regret, that the things that were on my story list that I couldn't really get to um, is reproductive health, that, you know, that the, the headline will be, wow, it's the end of the first year and Planned Parenthood still has its funding, because that turned out to be hard, too. But in the meantime, the Department of Health and Human Services is full of very committed anti-abortion activists, many of them, and they have done a a lot of things, um, including, although I should point out that the birth control rule that that was issued uh, in October was a stayed last week by a federal district court judge. We don't seem to know yet whether that's a national or a state. It was in the case was, is out of Pennsylvania. Um, I think. And there's still, another similar case pending in California, right. which we should have. Right. We expect a ruling on and quite short. 
exactly. But, you know, we've seen, you know, on and off, and I think we've talked about this a little bit, the, the Office, of, Office of Refugee Resettlement, which is actually in the Department of Health and Human Services, and these minors um, who are in custody who want abortions, and not at the government expense, but they've been preventing them. And, you know, there have been a number of lawsuits. I mean, there's a lot going on in the reproductive health space that I think is just getting sort of flooded out by the other healthcare news. I think the reproductive news is going to be made in the coming years because one of Trump's successes is populating the judiciary with conservative judges, young conservative judges. And he's gotten a lot through, and that will change this country in, in, in reproductive rights in And, and in many of them were, were, were vacancies that were held open by the Republicans during the Obama administration that they basically wouldn't fill with Obama nominees so they could wait until they had a Republican president to fill. And, and Mitch McConnell said this week that, in fact, he thinks that his greatest accomplishment of this year, perhaps even more so than the tax bill, was the effect that the um, Senate is having on these on these judgeships. I think McConnell really understands that having more conservative judges is going to change the overall legacy of you know this Congress and and the durability of what it passes. Because the headline this week was about the three that are not going to get through, including the one who apparently didn't remember anything he learned in law school. But the fact that I can sympathize. I mean, what do I remember from college? But um, the you know, so those got headlines because that was just such a you know nightmare. It was pretty egregious. But um, he, there, were, I, I forgot the number. I don't know if anyone around the table knows, but lots and lots of judges have been approved this year, and they are all conservative, and, and they're and, all over the and country. And the Senate has changed its process. McConnell has changed the process, made it harder for individual senators to prevent. Uh, judges from coming forward and done other things to kind of accelerate the process by which they're approved. And so that means that probably we'll continue to see them kind of uh, push through in in the rest of this. Forget that. I mean, there's one Supreme Court. Obviously, Gorsuch is on the Supreme Court. We don't know what else will happen on the Supreme Court in the next, you know, three minimum years of the Trump administration. But even without any further change in the Supreme Court, the federal judiciary is different. And it's it's definitely a long game. And the idea is that, okay, so a courts have blocked the repeal of the birth control mandate now, but maybe down the line when we have one of these new judges. Exactly. Then. um, So, I I mean, you you have to think many years or decades into the future to see the, the true repercussions here. Well, that, that, that may fall into our next category, which is what are the most unresolved stories of the year? Um, that's, I was, I of course was thinking of the opioid crisis. Sorry, I, jumped, are, I jumped the gun. It's all right. Are there are there others though? Things that are that that we that were big stories this year, but we absolutely have no idea how they're going to turn out. Well, um, we we talked about uh, the resiliency of Medicaid and the popularity and how that's changed politically. However, we do have the brewing work requirements. Uh, <laughs> campaign going on, which could really reduce um, the number of people who can enroll in Medicaid by hundreds of thousands nationally. Um, there will be lawsuits, but again, long game. <laughs> get get <laughs> All those, those conservative judges. judges. Um, uh, so, yes, many states are moving towards implementing work requirements. We've talked in the past about how that could make it more difficult for people to get treated for their opioid addictions and prevent them from getting back to work. So it, they're sort of trapped in this catch-22 of they can't get Medicaid or health care if they don't have a job, but they can't get a job if they don't get well enough to be able to go to work. And also in the unresolved, I think this is not unresolved just from this year. This is kind of a long-term unresolved story. But the Affordable Care Act, in addition to bringing insurance to lots of people who couldn't get it before, was also supposed to transform the way that medicine was delivered and try to make it 
more efficient, um, safer, lower cost. And, you know, to that end, there are all these programs that were launched out of Medicare. Some were like specifically in the law. Some of them were, you know, experiments that were allowed to be developed by the government. And this is like an ongoing process. You know, there was also this law that was passed a few years ago called MACRA that was designed to change the incentives for individual physician behavior, try to get them to, you know, not just do a lot of stuff to people, but actually care about what their long-term outcomes are. And I just personally feel like the jury is really out on whether any of this stuff is working, how well it's working. We talked last week about how we seem to be in this period of sustained slowdown in the growth in health spending. And that's a good news story that suggests maybe something has changed in the way that medicine is being delivered that makes it less costly or at least less uh, ravenous than it was before. But I just There was a piece this week in JAMA from um, Ashish Shah, who is a scholar at Harvard who really looks at a lot of these patient safety measures. And he was saying that one of the most heralded programs in Obamacare, which was this program to try to reduce readmission. So a readmission is you go to the hospital, you leave, and then you bounce back within 30 days. And the theory was that hospitals should try to get that number lower because if people are so sick that they're coming right back, that's a sign that maybe the hospital didn't do a good job in the first place. And uh, Professor Ja reviewed all of this research on it and actually concluded that maybe this has been a very counterproductive measure, that in fact it may have increased deaths. Now, I think the evidence is not clear about that, right. but it was just it was just a reminder to me that all of these experiments are out there in the world and there were all of these really high-minded goals attached to them. And I, I feel like I don't really know what works and what doesn't work. And healthcare is hard, as I, as I like to say. Someone else said that this year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew? All right. We should probably move on to extra credit. Um, uh, that is where each of us recommends a story they read recently that they think everyone else should read, too. Don't worry. If you miss it, we will post the links to these pieces on the Kaiser Health News site, khn.org. I have already done mine. Um, Joanne. Uh, Jeff Young at uh, the Huffington Post did a nice story about 10 days ago. All of us are talking about how the future of the ACA is partly going to depend not just on Congress, but what the insurance companies do. And we've been all sitting around saying, oh, it's going to depend on the insurance companies. Well, Jeff called up about 15 of them. And, you know, it's early days yet. It was a negative. It was a it was a pessimistic, but not conclusive. But it was good hearing the voices of what, you know, these insurers did not say, I'm out of here. But they did say, I might be out of here. <laughs> Marco. I'm hoping since it's the end of the year that I can recommend two stories. Okay. So the, the first one I have to recommend because it just made me so jealous. And I was, it's, you know, it's one of these stories I wish that I had done. John Tazi at Bloomberg had a story looking at how for-profit hospital chains have started developing these side businesses as debt collection agencies. And he focused on Tenet Healthcare, which is a very large for-profit hospital chain that sort of had a little bit of a rough year in terms of its financial performance of its hospitals, but it's apparently had a gangbusters year in this spinoff called Conifer that does bill collection for its hospitals, but also for hundreds of other hospitals. So this is a revenue line for a hospital company uh, that is trying to, you know, wring dollars out of customers who perhaps can't afford to pay their bills. And HCA, another large for-profit hospital chain, apparently is also in this business. And the story just—I didn't know anything about this, and and uh, it, it seems like a really interesting. It's uh, a and pretty important amazing piece. Yeah. And then uh, I will just briefly mention that uh, Julia Belouz at Vox has been doing a series of stories on bariatric surgeries, uh, particularly focused on young people. But she sort of looked more broadly at, at the science and at the personal experience of people who have these surgeries and how it changes or doesn't change their lives. And uh, I just really recommend all the stories in that series. 
They've been good. Alice. So I've had my head so buried in what Congress has been up to the last few weeks that I've been trying to catch up on what the <laughs> the executive branch has been up to in terms of health care. And I was very interested in a story in Politico about um, HHS, the Department of Health and Human Services, um, not posting com- all of the public comments on their site. Um, and they've uh, about 10,000 comments um, were withheld. And there's some question as to whether they were withholding the comments that were critical of what they were doing, but posting the ones that were supportive of what they were doing and sort of creating this misleading picture um, of what the public <laughs> thinks about um, the rules they're proposing and what they're up to. And I, I think that um, you know, while on its own, maybe not as big a deal as it it initially seems, but I think it's definitely part of a pattern across the administration of a rollback of transparency, access to information about what the government is up to, and the ability for the public to weigh in. And I think that in the health space, it's definitely a big deal. Yeah, I think one of the things we've seen out of this administration is a, a a deep desire not to share things with the media or the public. Well, I don't think Secretary Price, when he was uh, secretary, ever had an open press conference with the national media. I mean, he no, I don't few, think so either. Yeah, I mean, even like the annual budget, we've always had an annual budget explainer from the secretary for years and years and years. We didn't even get that. So there'll be a new secretary presumably next month, and uh, we will see what changes. If anything. Absolutely. Well, that is it for today, and that is it for 2017. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd also appreciate it if you left a review. That will help other people find us, too. And here's our holiday surprise. If you'd like to watch the podcast in person, we're going to tape in front of a live audience in January here at the Kaiser Family Foundation headquarters. Stay tuned for details, but we'd love to see you here in D.C. If you have comments, you can email us. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. At Sanger Katz. At Joanne Kennan. At Alice Olstein. We'll be back in your feed in 2018. In the meantime, be healthy.